me this Thursday, the 20th of August. We've got a massive show coming up for you here today. And joining me, as always, is my co-host and beloved colleague coming to you live from his headquarters, his home, Nick Stoll. Okay, Stolich, how are you? Good, good. It's a small headquarters. Uh, you know, Sydney apartments aren't, aren't exactly cheap, but uh, yeah, it's good. It's a good headquarters. Hey, look, it's home. That's all that matters. Um, speaking of home, this guy has been at the forefront of covering the home of football with the Herald Sun. He's now since moved over to the Ticker Lounge, right? So he's the Ticker Sport host, a new platform coming to you. Uh, and it's a pleasure to have his company on the show with us today, former Herald Sun journalist David Davutovic. Davore, so good to see you, mate. How are you? Going well. Pleasure to be with you. No, great to see you, mate. And uh, another special guest that we've got, this group will be a very happy lot after last night's result against Western United. And they are coming to us live from a bowling alley, right? These are the lengths that these footballers and these clubs will go to to get any kind of promotion for their football clubs. We're so delighted to welcome Melbourne City midfielder Josh Brillante. Josh, how are you going over there, mate? Yeah, you're not bad. Thanks, guys. How are you all? Yeah, we're going very well. And we're going to start with you, of course. I mentioned it there. You were so delighted, I'm sure, off the back of last night's result. You're going into the final series in a very strong position. Uh, given that you are at a bowling alley, of course, I'm, I'm guessing you're all very happy. But tell us, um, what was the reaction after last night's win? Yeah, I think everyone was super pleased with the result. Uh, obviously, last game of the season, it's nice to um, finish off with a win and lead into the final. So everyone's in good spirits and uh, we're, we're ready for the semi-final next week. What about for yourself personally? I want to touch on, you know, your journey so far with Melbourne City. You made the switch to NFC where I thought you were so prolific with the football club and that partnership that you had with Brandon O'Neill, who, of course, has since has left and deployed overseas now. But um, what's it been like for you uh, with City so far this season? Yeah, it's been uh, a new challenge for myself and, you know, I've loved every moment of it. Uh, you know, Melbourne City's got some great facilities and, a good culture here at the club, so it's been a great season, and I think um, you know we started off really well, and we've, we're finishing off really well. So it's nice to to help the team to I think the highest position they've been in the A League, um, obviously Asian Champions League playoffs, and um, hopefully a, a championship as well. So that'd be nice to finish off like that. Before I bounce over to uh, David and Nick Stoll to ask you some questions, I, I have to know. I'm desperate to know actually. How are your bowling skills? <laughs> They're a little bit rusty. A uh, couple of misses, a couple of strikes. It's been it's been okay, but um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm not the best, so it's just all for fun. We've just lost Davide briefly, but um, Nick Stoll, I'll bounce over to you for some questions for Josh before we get uh, Davide back into the frame. Yeah, Josh, I just wanted to ask about the coach, Eric Mombart. You know, he's a bit of a character. We're, we're kind of uh, very interested in him kind of off the field. And I think he's been a breath of fresh air, actually. But what, what's he like both as a character and a coach? And what are some of the things that maybe we don't see uh, in the media, but, you know, that you get privy to? Yeah, no, he's fantastic. Um, he's very lighthearted. You know, you rarely see him get really worked up. And he's quite cool, calm and collected when he's, trying to get information across to the players. And I think the players have received that pretty well. Um, some players can get overwhelmed if they get yelled at all the time, but I think the communication has been really good. Is he, is he yellow? Is he yellow? Oh. Uh, rarely. If he does yell, it's um, he doesn't have the, a very uh, dominant voice. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, some people have that voice where when they yell, you can really hear them and, and others not so much. But um, he gets his point across, which is the main thing. 
Sorry, I uh, lost you for a second, guys, but I'm back. But um, I find your gaffer fascinating, Josh. Uh, mm. And the rumour is that when he came into the club, he did something like 20, 25 chin-ups just uh, off the bat. And he also takes ice baths. So just tell us a little bit about uh, the man behind the man or the man behind the coach. Yeah, well, I, I haven't seen either of those myself. But I have heard the same thing. Uh, I think he rocked up with a, a black suit and a a black top hat and just went straight into the gym and smashed out 20, 30 chin-ups. So uh, I think everyone was quite impressed from the get-go. And um, with, with the ice bars, I think it's cold showers is his thing. It's a, I think it's a mental thing, but um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. <laughs> uh, Josh, what's it like being in this hub environment? I mean, some will say that it's an advantage because you're effectively just all you're doing is eating, sleeping and breathing football versus some clubs like a Sydney FC, for example, who, you know, have the luxury of being at home. But um, how's the environment been and, and has it been an advantage for you or is it something that, you know, you see the, the, the opposite side of? Um, it's, it's been quite okay, actually. You know, we've been well looked after. We're in a nice hotel. We're, I think we're staying in the Hunter Valley on a golf course, so we've got um, a nice rooms and, and decent food. Um, in a sense, it's it's good because, like you said, all, all you're doing is, is training and prepping for the next game. But um, I wouldn't say it's an advantage because, you know, being away from your family and, and some plays with kids would definitely be hard. Uh, I think it's more of a mental game than anything rather than... Uh, you know, prepping prepping for the games mentally is probably the hardest thing. Mm. Stolich, over to you. Yeah, Josh, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, at the moment there's a lot of talk of the A-League next season and possible the fact that players might have to take pay cuts and or there's a lot of uncertainty and when contracts are going to start as well. Um, is that something that you and the, the boys are discussing? Is that something that you guys are worried about? How, how are you kind of looking towards the future? Yeah, there's a bit of uncertainty there, not knowing what's going to happen next season. Um, only a couple of weeks away until the season's going to be finished. So I think uh, the sooner we find out what's going to happen, it'll, the better it'll be for everyone. Um, yeah, like you said, there's, there's been talks about pay cuts and when the season's going to kick off and how it's going to be structured. So um, uh, we're, we're in contact with the PFA and they're in contact with us through these negotiations. So I think it's important to make sure they get it right. Uh, because next season is going to be a crucial one for the A-League moving forward in football in Australia. Josh, um, I wanted to speak to you about the importance of Australia's youth national teams. And I was over at the uh, 2013 FIFA Under-20 World Cup. You were part of the Young Soccer Squad. I remember having a good chat to you, a young, shy Bundaberg boy. Uh, you've uh, you've opened up a little bit since. But um, it was a great tournament. Really enjoyed watching you and, and the team play. We're going to talk about Trevor Morgan just being appointed the technical director later on. But um, how important was that tournament and even the qualifying process in terms of your career? Uh, I, th- I think it was massive. And, um, you know, I'm forever grateful to be a part of that because those experiences, you know, helped develop me along the way. Um, I think it's so important for those youth teams to get games like that and tournaments and exposure to. Um, other clubs and other national teams around the world because it you know it helps you develop as a player and a person. Um, you know, this I got some fond memories there at that under twenties World Cup and all the lead ups to it as well. So I think it's super important that we keep the, those rolling and to make sure the youth get exposure like that. And a cracking goal too. <laughs> yeah, it's, that was a while ago now, so 
be nice to hit another one like that. Soon. Can we roll the tape, guys? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll let you go in just a second, Josh, um, but a few more questions. Uh, I just want to know from your perspective, this break now that you've got, obviously before the next game, uh, what are some of the things that Melbourne City will be looking to work on, do you feel? I think keeping the uh, intensity in the games. I think the last few games we've showed great intensity. Uh, bar the, probably the second half against Adelaide, going a man down. That was a bit tough. But um, I think, again, we showed last night from the get-go, we're on the front foot, um, you know, trying to trying to get forward and put pressure up. So I think we'll continue that into the finals. Is there anyone in particular that you're hoping to avoid or are you really prepared for everybody at this point? Yeah, we yeah we've had that mindset of being prepared for for any team because I think um, compared to when the league did stop to when it restarted again, you know there was diff- different teams in form and like you guys know when it comes to finals times anything anything can happen so you can't go into any, any games thinking you've got it in the bag. Question coming through from Michael Long, one of our top fans across both our World Game Live platforms on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Hi Josh, what were you talking to Diamanti about last night? Post game, were you talking in Italian? <laughs> yeah, I, I I try to talk to him in Italian, but he's getting really good at his English too. So um, no, I I, um, I asked him for a, a jersey a couple of weeks ago, and and then he's he's come to me and said, um, make sure you give me your jersey. And I said, are you sure you want my jersey? He said, yeah, I would love it. So um, I was a bit surprised by that. <laughs> Stolich, a few more before we let Josh go. Yeah, Josh, I wanted to ask you, how has the change to uh, playing in winter gone? Because, you know, there's a lot of kind of anecdotal kind of responses. We feel like we're seeing a better product. We, we, it feels like it's easier on the players and the players are enjoying it more. But, you know, there, there was a story today that actually the data isn't showing that so much players are, are running more or anything like that. How does it actually feel in, internally? Are you guys much happier with the move to winter on the field? Yeah, I, I, I much prefer winter. I think most of the boys said that they'd be happy moving into a winter league. Um, for the fact of, you know, in Australia, you get some games in Perth and Brisbane, 3pm kickoffs, and it gets scorching hot. And I think that does affect the game a little bit. Um, in, in terms of the data, it's, it's been a bit difficult at the moment to exactly say um, it's not working because through COVID we've had that long period. I think it was four months of not playing games. Um, you know, every club had we're in different situations in regards to training and keeping fit. Um, but I, I think it's a positive thing, and um, yeah, I think everyone here is quite happy for it to be a winter league. Josh, what's one thing that you would like to see added, tweak, change to the A League slash Australian football in in coming years? Um, we're headed in the right direction with more teams. Um, I think that's that's a positive thing. Uh, more games as well. Uh, I think if we can get to the thirty over over thirty games a season, that would be much better. Um, yeah, I think just those small little things that need to keep developing in, in the league. And and another thing is uh, foreigners coming in too. Um, I think with, with good foreigners coming in, we'll get lots of fans again, and I think that's a positive thing as well. One last question coming through from Hassan Bertan, another one of our top fans across both our shows. Uh, he wants to know, how is J-Mac, Josh? Uh, of course, we were all very delighted to see Maka scoop up the Golden Boot Award. Very well deserved. He's been very prolific for you guys. But uh, how is he? What's he like? Yeah, no, he's top bloke. And as you can imagine, he's buzzing today. You know, Golden Boot. Um, you know, he's one of those strikers you love to have in your team. He's just, he's just always around, always poaching goals. Um and he really has that mindset of going into games, 
knowing that he's going to score. And I think um, I think that helps him on the pitch. You know, if, if, you're, if you're going to think, if you're thinking about it all the time, then it will probably happen. And um, yeah, we're we're excited that we've been able to give him the opportunity to get the golden boot. Well, he's been in red-hot form, as have Melbourne City. We can't keep you any longer. There's clearly so much going on for this team event. We have to let you get back to your bowling. We hope it improves this afternoon, and we look forward to seeing you guys in action come the final series. Thank you so much, Josh Brillante, for joining us here today. Good chat to you. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Great to see Josh there and have his company. Um, I want to ask you, Davode, what's been the thing about Melbourne City that's impressed you most this season and why are they in the best position we've seen them in the league, uh, well, basically since their inception? Well, they've got a very good coach for starters, a guy that's uh, really um, tactically savvy. I mean, you know, this is a guy that coached PSG. It was a long time ago, but coached also the French under-18 and under-21 um, national teams. Um you know, language has been a challenge for him. Um, he, he's, he certainly, um, you know, worked hard at, at his English. Um, you know, I think he's 64. So, um, uh, you know, communication perhaps was a little bit of a challenge at the start, but um, he's got a lot better and better. But clearly the message um, has got through. But what I've really liked about him, and it sort of goes to, a you know, a bit of a, a broader issue, is I think he's nailed what Melbourne City um, is and needs to be in terms of a club that's got, you know, good top-end players, a la your, your Jamie McLaren's, um, Josh Brillante, etc., and then some good younger players coming through. And, um, you know, he gave a lot of those younger players opportunities at the start of the year, a la Connor Metcalf, um, Denny Genro, uh, Rami Nazarene got some minutes as well. And, and that has meant that uh, over the course of the season, there were many opportunities for him to to you know, leave, leave them out for the uh, more experienced players, but he persisted with them, and it's meant that come the business end of the season, um, they've had a lot of depth to work with, and uh, yeah, they've just played some uh, some fantastic football. And just his you know little positional tweaks, you know, he played Brillante, I think, at uh, at stopper on one occasion, and Roston Griffiths played there, but there was always a science to it. Um, so yeah, I've been really impressed with him, and the players have really bought into it. I want to take a look at the highlights now, Solich, if we can, um, from last night's result. Western United 1, Melbourne City 3. For a while there towards the back end, of course, it looked like Melbourne City were going to run away cleanly with it. But then Western United jagged one back and they and they started to, to look ferocious. And for a period there, uh, it was all Western United. And I genuinely thought that they were going to be able to level here, which would have been very reminiscent of the game against Perth, uh, sorry against Adelaide which uh, Josh just mentioned there. But, uh, you know, it's that age-old thing in football. You can dominate as much as you like, but then all it takes is for one opportunity and a guy like Jamie McLaren to get on the end of the ball and finish it off and then put the nail in the coffin. 3-1, as I said, the final result. But um, what did you make of the game, Stolich? And and firstly, the question around it is also, can City win their first ever title? Do you see it happening? Well, I, I definitely do. I think, you know, with the form that they are in and the form that Sydney FC are in, I think there's definitely a chance that um, City can go on to win it. And I'd probably say they're probably favourites now at this stage. Um, they look really good. I, I really like the way Mombata set them up. I really like the confidence that they're playing with as well. You know, last night it's hard to read into the game because, like you said, it was kind of very up and down for both sides, a lot of rotations. You know, we, we didn't see the best of Western United and probably didn't even see the best of uh, Melbourne City. But they're a great team. You know, the way they're using kind of inverted fullbacks, they just they look almost the most complete team uh, in the A-League in terms of they just look very balanced all across the pitch. You know, the, they, they spread out wide. 
in attack, compact in defence. It's been really good to see them improve from where they were last year because I think we all want to see Melbourne City doing well because, you know, they're the richest club and they're always going to have the ability to bring in, you know, great players and, and young players as well. Speaking of great players, Davide, I have to find out from you uh, your impressions of Diamante in the league so far. Um, for me, he's just been a real revelation and such a delight to watch, but how have you rated him? Yeah, he has. I mean, I was lucky enough to uh, watch him firsthand when I was based in the UK uh, between 2008 and 2011. I think he got to West Ham 2009, maybe 2010. Um, and I used to go to Upton Park quite a lot. I just lived down the road and Lucas Neal was there and uh, I used to love watching him play there. He was just, uh, there was some games in the Premier League where he absolutely just tore it up. And uh yeah, you know, we're seeing, uh, we've certainly seen glimpses of that. Um, he's played, I think, 25 games this season, seven goals, seven assists. So he's had a fantastic campaign, you know, for his age um, to have delivered what he has. Um, yeah, phenomenal. And uh, yeah, when you talk about, you know, moving more into that, that winter period, I think guys like him um, would certainly appreciate it more. And we'd be able to see... Um, you know, more of his uh, his highlights reels. I mean, that attempted lob the other day was uh, was <laughs> sensational. And that's what we love about him. He's sort of, he's a player from the street, isn't he? He's not like your sort of, you know, curriculum player, um, so to speak. Some of the stuff that he, he does, the, the the balls that he sees, the um, opportunities from long range, a la that, that, that shot um, that hit the crossbar just, uh, you know, are, are on another on another planet. What about Western United's foray into the A-League? Their debut season, they are, of course, delighted to be playing finals football. But what have you made of this franchise? Have they added enough to the competition? Um, Do we need to see more from them? And if so, what are you hoping to see more of? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it was an interesting one because you go back to that whole expansion process and um, it was uh, an interesting process, to say the least. I think going back to uh, Josh Bidilante's point, um, you know, more clubs. I think it was a real lost opportunity for uh, for the A-League and for the FFA because there were 15 bids and uh, in the end we've got one club at the moment with another club coming in next season and, and that's it. Um, you know, there was a lot of money on the table from, you know, new franchises, from um, existing clubs and, uh, you know, the fact that we didn't... Uh, exploit that opportunity. I think we're going to pay for that for um, a long, long time. But, um, you know, Western United were, were, were caught on the hop. They had, you know, what, less than a year to, you know, put the club and the team together, which isn't ideal. It's not how you should be, you know, running um, expansion. And, you know, definitely I, I think MacArthur were more suited to coming into the competition because they had a stadium ready to go. I mean, it's not the reason you give it to them. But, for instance, if they came in, they probably signed Mila Yedinak and... Uh, you know, a, a few other players, but um, yeah, it's been it's been a challenging time for for Western United. Um, you know, I think they've played at three or four different venues, including Geelong and Ballarat. So these are the things that they're going to have to really, you know, sort out um, moving forward. So yeah, if you compare them to to Western Sydney Wanderers, who you know were the high watermark in terms of A League expansion, um, you know, absolutely not. But you know, there's been uh, clubs uh, that have uh, that have come and gone uh, in the expansion race. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, to underline the importance of them and, and the point that we had new clubs, I mean, Josh Bialanta, where did he get his first opportunity? You know, Gold Coast. And uh, they gave a number of, of young players opportunities. So we need to keep uh, we need to keep growing the game. 
Uh, before I bounce over to Stolich, I don't want to get too bogged down in this conversation, but I'm sure, like yourself, I mean, I'd seen a lot of the documentation that was doing the rounds at the time of the expansion processes. We'd seen the data that had been collected. Um, but from your perspective, where else would you have liked to have seen licences awarded? Can you hear me? Is that Dave? question for Nick? Sorry, I thought that. Sorry, was for that's Nick. to you. <laughs> that's yeah, sorry. to you. That's. I'm like Nick. You're going to ju- jump in, mate? Or <laughs> <laughs> I was being very polite. <laughs> just no. I'm just nodding no, along. Polite. You're, you're yeah. star of the show. No. Mm. Yeah, you're the star of the show now. Yeah. Come on, I want to hear oh, from thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Look, I think it's silly to talk about that expansion process in isolation. You need to talk about it in the context of, you know, the whole of football, like the second division is an absolute must. So, um, you know, I mean that, that expansion process, if you look at that alone, they should have got it to, to, to 16 teams and probably added two teams um, per year, but you know, it needs to be discussed. But in the why context didn't of the they? I want to know why didn't they? That's what I want to get to the bottom of. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a question for, I guess, the FFA and the, and the people that were running the process. Um, Do you think it was politics, Dave? I mean, let's really get down to brass tacks here and, and not BS this. Do you think it was a politics-driven thing? i just say, Lucy, well, you did start this with, I don't want to drag on about this, and now <laughs> let's get into it. <laughs> yep. Now I want to get into it. Now we've opened up the can of words. I mean, I, I just want, to, I want us to speak honestly about it because I think mm. from my perspective, I think that that whole process was pretty freaking farcical. We have to go to the start of the process and how and why did it did it come about? It's almost as if it came about by accident. I'm not sure whether you know the intentions were 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 authentic. Um, I'm not sure the FFA expected there to be that much interest in Australian football. I think at that time it was about 2015. You know, Ange Postecoglou played a big part in that. He um, you know wrote about it extensively in his book changing the game and you know that was around the time off the back of the Asian Cup win and you know the Wanderers won the Asian Champions League and they come into the competition and you know Timmy Cahill was rumoured to be coming back so it was just a really um, really important time uh, really great time for for the game and um, you know then in the background you have that whole uh, political issue going on with FIFA and the Congress mm-hmm. dispute and um, you know a lot of people suggest that you know that was the reason that um, you know that the FFA ran the process to be seen to be I guess you know doing something with you know with FIFA um, watching on because obviously you know the, the whole um, closed shop and and you know no promotion relegation and, and the lack of second division is something that you know is against fifa statutes and they um you know have told australia that um you know that they will need to fall into line with the rest of the world at some stage so yeah perhaps they weren't genuine about the process from the get-go and um you know it was it was flawed from the start but you know when you look at someone like tasmania like you know, since that expansion process, it's almost like that, you know, with the Matildas and, and you know, them going on strike and, you know, it was great things happened for them and they got the pay rise. But off the back of that, it was all the other sports that, that sort of, you know, um, seized the opportunity. Netball, cricket, AFL, same with Tasmania. It's been the other sports now that have seized um, that opportunity and, and, and taken that momentum. You know, the AFL's having meetings about, you know, setting up a club over there. Um, you've got the NBL going over there. Yet, you know, there was a lot of money behind that Tassie bid. There's been some great people behind it. You've got political support there. You've mm-hmm. got 
Launceston as a, I think it's Launceston as one of the 2023 Women's World Cup venues. The game's going to be played at an AFL venue. What a great opportunity to actually get a rectangular stadium going and, and, you know, build it as part of a broader Tasmanian football narrative. Let's, you know, whether it's getting a team in a W League first with a view to getting a team in the A League. I mean, yeah, where do you, where do you start and stop? Mm, it's a great point. And I, I said we wouldn't get bogged down in it and I'm going to try and <laughs> stick to that. Um, Stolich, your impressions of Western United come this final series. I mean, I know that you've said that you expect them to, to cause an upset effectively, but on the balance of last night, I know that some players were rested, etc. But, uh, you know, I think that Melbourne City for mine, they're just too strong at this point. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting. Finals can be weird, you know, teams that I always think the team first and second get like, you know, the week off and all that. I don't know if it helps. I don't know if it helps when you're playing regularly and all that. You know, this isn't a team that's been playing a game every three days and really needs the break. So I I, I wouldn't be surprised if Western United do cause an upset, Um, you know, as could Wellington Phoenix, although their form hasn't been great kind of going into the finals, but they've been kind of good all season. So I I, I expect Western United to get up against Brisbane Raw and then we'll see what they're able to do in the game after that. Well, let's talk about the first final series match that we're going to see this Saturday, the 22nd of August. Wellington Phoenix uh, taking on Perth Glory. Perth Glory have been doubled in absolutely shambolic form since the restart. Tony Popovich would be the first to bristle at the idea that it is because Diego Castro is no longer in the side because he made decisions not to return during the uh, the, the COVID-19 period. But uh, what do you think? I mean, the chances that you give this Perth side, they were so prolific last season. It was such a shame they couldn't win the grand final but how do you rate their chances oh yeah very slim at the moment and you know to link it into the discussion about Melbourne City it's impossible to have this discussion without bringing in you know the off-field side of it and what's happened over the last few months if you compare the way Perth Glory handled um, the pandemic versus a Melbourne City um, you know chalk and cheese and admittedly in the end Perth Glory weren't the only club to, to stand players down without pay initially, and then obviously eventually mm-hmm. they signed up to, to JobKeeper and whatnot. But, um, look, behind the scenes, there was uh, a lot of angst with um, the Perth Glory players, as there uh, was with, you know, a number of other clubs. Contrast that with Melbourne City, where my understanding is that every player was paid what they were owed, and, and I believe they may be the only um, A-League club that did that. So, you know, as a starting point, Melbourne City is clearly going to be better placed, um, you know, returning to it. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's no surprise that Diego Castro, I mean, yeah, obviously COVID was, uh, you know, the reason behind it. But, yeah, I think we all know the, the real reason for it. So, you know, Perth Glory, I'll tell you what, if they if they get to the grand final, um, it could be a greater feat than uh, Popper getting the Wanderers or winning the Asian Champions League because uh, <laughs> morale uh, there, I suspect, is at an all-time low. Which is pretty surprising for a Tony Popovich side who loves to have his team so well disciplined, well drilled, and uh, you know defensively very sound as well. The goals that they've copped has been just almost dreadful to watch. But both sides, Stolich necessarily haven't been in great forms. We've got it there. Both only one win in their last five matches. Um, the question that I posed last night, or the statement effectively that I put up on Twitter last night, was the final series should move to a top four. Let's start celebrating success and stop idolising mediocrity effectively which is what we're doing. I mean, the fact that a side like First Glory who have been in such disgraceful form, let's just be honest, 
uh, could have a crack at a grand final spot and a trophy, uh, to me, I think is just getting beyond ridiculous. But your thoughts first on Wellington and then tell me if you'd like to see a top four or if I'm just talking garbage once again. Um, no, I don't think you're talking garbage on this specific instance, but, um, no, I, <laughs> I think, uh, I, 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 I kind of agree with you. I don't like a team winning it from six. It seems weird to finish in the bottom half of the table and still Which have a chance. Historically, it hasn't happened. Let's be honest. No, it still hasn't no. happened. No, it's unlikely. But then it sometimes even, you know, you talk about uh, like in the, in the footy codes and the team that you know, comes in eighth. It's like, what are they doing there? They're just there to get smoked by a team in the first round of the final. So I kind of agree with you. I wouldn't mind seeing it top four with two legs. I like two legs as a system yeah. a lot, you know, home and away that, that can be very exciting. Um, you know, I know the A-League, they've, they've tinkered with it a lot. I don't know what their reason is for saying that this is the best way to do it, but that, that's what I would like money! to see. Money, show me the money. That's what it's about. But, I mean, is it? Do you get more money by by doing this? I, I don't know. Like, so well, it's about it's... television rights as well. But that's now gone down the toilet, as we know. Uh, you know, we've seen a dramatically reduced broadcast rights deal renegotiated for the next season, and we don't even know Fox Sports are going to be a part of it thereafter. So, you know, what's it about anymore? You're absolutely right. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that would be uh, very interesting. But having said all that, you know, Western United wouldn't be in the top four this year. They'd finish fifth. So I guess, you know, we would be missing out uh, on a team like them. But then I guess the top four oh, race makes it. Big... That's yeah. football. Sure. Sure. I, I just don't think it will be a, a huge game change. I think, I think it's probably a better thing to do. But yeah, I don't know how much it's going to move the needle. Davide, what's your thoughts around it? Because, I mean, look, I've been an advocate for first past the post, but I don't think that that's going to change. I think they've really got their hearts set on a final series because we don't have that many teams in the competition. Of course, we are expanding to 12 come next season. But ultimately, I mean, my whole argument is is that I just think it would create more intensity. We'd start to see a bit more of a scrap in the absence of things like promotion, relegation and a national second division, which at this point, we're at the mercy of FFA when it comes to those things. And when you speak to James Johnson, he's openly told told us that it could be something they look to introduce two to three years away. And then you've got Graham Arnold and people like yourself saying, well, it's a must. We can't wait that long. We need it now. So what are your thoughts around the final series? Yeah, look, the problem with going to a top four series, especially next year when you're going to 12 teams, you're going to get a lot of dead rubbers very early in the season. And without relegation, um, that's pretty dangerous. I think you're threatened to really... um, yeah, I mean, with so many dead rubbers, I think it would be, uh, you know, really detrimental to the A-League. So I think, you know, it's, it's really important for them to start um what makes you think you get so many... What, make, what makes you think you'd get early dead rubbers? Well, it's just mathematics. I mean, now you've got a top six with 11 teams and, you know, there were a number of teams that were out of contention pretty early on. So if you're reducing it to four and you've got 12 teams, like it would just... You know, you could have three teams just run away with it early in the season and, and you know, then it's just one spot to play for or, you know, potentially the top four. Stitch it up nice, you know, really early and, and, and you know, the back half or the back third of the season, again, lots of dead rubbers. So when you don't have relegation, um, I just think that's dangerous. I don't necessarily agree with it, but in the current context, I, I'm not sure it would work. But, you know, I certainly agree with – I think the first past the post, again, would have merit if there was relegation. I mean, imagine a scenario whereby if you did have a second division and, say, bottom went down, top went up, or even bottom two, top two, and then your, say, second last 
and second team from the second division, I hope I haven't lost you, um, have the playoff game like they do in, in a number of countries a la Germany. I mean, that game would effectively replace the grand final. It would be bigger than Ben-Hur. So, um, yeah, again, I think all of these discussions, you can't have them in isolation. I think we need to start having them in, in the context of the whole of football. And the FFA has obviously released its, you know, 11 principles. So, um, yeah, hopefully we can get cracking with some of these things because, like, all of this stuff is just absolutely critical, you know, with regards to us, you know, being competitive internationally and, and, and producing uh, top-level players. How do we improve the A-League from your perspective? I mean, I think we're sort of, you know, at the point now where we're looking for things, uh, you know, like myself, for example, saying, well, okay, in the absence of promotion, relegation and and those things making the competition interesting, what can we do within the existing framework? Um, But what do you think needs addressing first and foremost? I think when you say how do you improve the A-League, it depends what you want the A-League to be. So, you know, if you open it up to eight visa spots, naturally the quality is going to be higher, but we don't necessarily want that. I think it's really important to um, look at it through the lens of, you know, producing Australian players. And I wrote, a you know, a story uh, a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if I can mention it, but I wrote it for Optus Sport. Um of course you can. Uh, of course you can. Awesome. We love the work actually that you've done with Optus Sport. The Football Belongs series was outstanding. Mm, very good. Thank you. Thank you kindly. And a lot of that was inspired by, you know, my upbringing watching SBS and, you know, on the ball and, and world soccer mm-hmm. and, and all of that. So, um, yeah, so, you know, thank you to SBS for that. But um, the story that I was referring to was, you know, the history of Australian football transfers now. My understanding is that the record outbound transfer is still from 1995. Gilles Kalatz's move mm-hmm. to Leicester City. Um, back then, the world record transfer fee was Gigi Lentini's move from AC to AC Milan from Torino for about, I don't know, 22 million Australian dollars. When you look at how much international transfers have increased, it's about 13-fold. The fact that we haven't exceeded that now is just beyond astonishing for me. So... That's the sort of stuff I think we need to look at when we're talking about how do we fix the A-League in Australian football. One of the things I've really enjoyed um, since the restart is seeing a lot more younger players get opportunities. And, you know, it's the chicken and the egg scenario. There's a lot of players I'm seeing out there at the moment who are going all right. But I heard, you know, many people behind the scenes five or six months ago saying, ah, he's not good enough, he's not up to it. But give them an opportunity, give them 20 or 30 games and, and see what happens. So... For whatever reason, I don't think, um, you know, enough clubs have, have cottoned on to, you know, the power of investing in in young players and, and how they can tap into that from an economic viewpoint. Um, I think Adelaide United started doing some some good things in the last, you know, six months, for instance, tying yeah. some of them up to longer-term contracts. But, again, uh, the fact that the Spiders 95 moved to Leicester um, is still the record. is just baffling. Stolich, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree, and I think it's amazing that Spider has that record and still can't get his Wi-Fi <laughs> sorted. It wouldn't be on our show yesterday. Anyway, hopefully, we'll have Spider on one day. But um, no, telling you yeah, what t- he wants to talk about his transfer, and uh, he'll get it sorted in a minute. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. We weren't talking about Champions League yesterday. He gets to bring out the fact he won it in two thousand and seven. He still wouldn't sort it out. Come um, on, no, if that's but- not enough. 
Exactly. Dove, I totally agree with you in terms of this. I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's you look at someone like Serge Nabry, who had an amazing game in the Champions League this morning. Mm-hmm. He was a guy who was told by Tony Pulis that he wasn't good enough for West Brom. Yeah. So it is yeah. that thing of like, we don't know, just because one coach doesn't rate you or just because a few coaches don't rate you in a certain league, that's why you do need more teams ideally a second division, so players who aren't getting that chance with a Sydney FC, with a Melbourne victory, some of the bigger teams, can drop down to the second division and really start, you know, having a really good form and then move their way up. So, yeah, I think, you know, I I, I agree with this. We're doing too many small tinkering things because they're probably the easier things to change. We're going to have to bite the bullet and either go for this second division and this promotion and relegation, because I think it would be amazing if we had a, a relegation playoff game. I mean, you think this year you got Melbourne victory in 10th. Imagine Melbourne victory was in a playoff spot against South Melbourne to come up. Whoever wins that goes to the A-League. Whoa! That, that, would be, in- that would be one of the biggest games in Australian club football history, without a shadow of a doubt. But then why won't FFA make it happen? This is the problem that I have with all of this. South Melbourne, from my understanding, put up a strong bid. You know, you had, as you mentioned earlier, David, again, we're dominoing back to this subject, but we can't help it invariably. But, you know, I, I, I knew of so many other clubs that put in really strong bids. Team 11's bid was fantastic. Southern Expansion's bid was fantastic. Um, you know, I know the Canberra bid, of course, being a Canberra girl myself, um, you know, having vision of, of what they were doing. Um, you know, they put a really strong bid together. So, the fact that we're in a situation where we know that what you're saying, historically we could see some of the biggest clashes in Australian football occur, but they're not putting it together um, and, and giving the people what they effectively want. I mean, that's why I think that the whole expansion process was farcical, but that just says to me that we don't have a board that's competent enough of making the right decisions going forward. Mm. You're spot on, Lucy. Like, they were all, you know, really sound bids in their own right. And one of the things that, you know, annoyed me, I think, and annoyed a lot of people was... Um, you know, the line from the FFA that, you know, the bids weren't perfect. No, they weren't. No bid is perfect. No. But they were a lot better than any of the previous expansion yeah. bids, a lot of them, not all of them, um, except for Western Sydney. But that was just like a no-brainer. That that should have happened um, many years earlier. But all of these bids had, you know, something um, to offer in their own right. You know, there, there needs to be a second club in in. Brisbane slash Queensland creating um, a derby over there. There were four or five clubs from Queensland as part of the expansion process. What's happened there? Um, you know, we need to eventually look at, you know, potentially creating derbies and it may end up being through the, you know, promotion through the second division um, in, in Adelaide um, and potentially Perth also. So that's the thing. It's like uh, it was just I think the process was flawed from the start where they, they stuck to the number, what was it, two? Um, and yet, all these bids—they had to be, had to be to use uh, to coin a COVID phrase, nimble. <laughs> God, I'm so sick of hearing that word, COVID. Um, when we start, say nimble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not nimble anymore. I've had a child. Those days are over. <laughs> uh, but I, I look, I, I want to move on again. It's a subject that we could certainly get bogged down in, um, especially when it comes to Australian football. But uh, I, I want to take a look at the next semi-final match that's going to occur. Uh, sorry, uh, the final series match. I'm thinking about the bloody 
Champions League and how about Bayern jagging that spot? I know it's the A-League show, but we have to quickly make mention of it. Brisbane Raw taking on Western United. We've spoken about Western United. Um, we've rated their first appearance in the A-League uh, and great to see them playing finals football. But Brisbane Raw, uh, and we'll talk about their, you know, back star, backroom staff issues uh, a little bit later down the track. But um, they've, they've been an interesting side. They've not been a side that we've talked about a lot, Stolich. But here they find themselves, um, you know, in the A-League final series and after so much upheaval, losing Robbie Fowler, etc. But how do you rate their chances? Well, like I said before, I, I don't think they're going to do too well. And one of the reasons is, and I want to kind of share it with you now, if you look at the league table. So Brisbane Raw, 26 games, 29 goals. They do have a, a quite impressive defence, 28, which is only behind Sydney FC's 25. But, you know, Jamie Young has had a lot of really good games. And I think sometimes when your keeper, and he is fantastic, but when your keeper is having so many good games, it's not a great sign that your team is, is doing too well. So I just wonder, I mean, maybe in finals football, maybe they are a team that is set up to, you know, maybe just jag a 1-0. But I think when people say, why aren't we talking more about Brisbane Raw? It's because, let's be honest, their football has been pretty terrible Turgid. to watch. Yeah, you know, it, it's they just don't score many goals. They don't create many chances. They're a hardworking team and, you know, fair play to, you know, Robbie Fowler and 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 after that for getting them to this position. But, yeah, I just got to say, I just don't like their football. And, you know, we think about the great Raw team under Ange, Raw Salona. This is not what they were. And I don't think they're going to do that well in the finals. So, I mean, who knows? We'll see. I've been wrong about plenty of things in the past. But, yeah, I just – I think uh, Wellington will be too strong for uh, – Western United will be too strong for them. Uh, they have looked a hell of a lot better since Scott McDonald arrived. But beyond that, where else do you see the quality across the park, Dalbody? Well, oh, we've lost him there. We've lost his w, sound. Your mic isn't connected, unfortunately. Uh, you know, listen. Here we go. We we've can. got you back again. We've got you back again. The curse go of Spider Kalach. I'm having a uh, a uh, technical clangor here today, so uh, apologies for that. As long as you're um, not in a bowling alley. <laughs> it can't get worse than that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... Scott McDonald, it's a, an interesting subplot to this game because he, of course, started with Western United this season. They released him. I think there was a clause in the contract which meant that he couldn't play against them first time round. So uh, expect some sparks to fly um, on, uh, what is it, Saturday or Sunday? Um, mm-hmm. Sunday. Game. Yeah. But, um, look, Dylan Wenzel-Hall scoring um, the other night, that'll do his confidence wonders as well. Um, you know, and, again, just, you know, an example of a young player um, relishing uh, relishing that opportunity. But, yeah, they don't have a, a prolific goal scorer per se. They're going to have to um, share it around. But, again, when you talk about the team's chances in context, I mean, Robbie Fowler was their coach up until the restart. Um, by all reports, Warren Moon has been, uh, you know, he's a pretty um, underrated uh, or low-profile coach, but by all reports he's done um, really well and he's, uh, he's quite well-respected um, by the players. So I think they're a, one of the real... Um, unknowns going into this final series. Mm, we'll be interesting to see what they can do, but they are the first lot of games coming up in this A-League final series as we look to conclude the season amidst what's certainly been a very chaotic year for everybody, not just footballers and their fans. Um, but the next topic of conversation, and we're going to come specifically to you on this because I think we've all uh, advocated for moving the A-League to winter, but it'd be good to get your thoughts around it. Um, I mean, per- personally, have you noticed an improvement on the field? And we put this question out to all of our viewers here today. And by the way, if you are just 
just tuning in, uh, tuning in, welcome. It's great to have your company this Wednesday, the 20th of August, with our special guest, David Davutovic. Um, Davore, over to you. What do you think? Winter football, yay or nay? Look, if you're talking purely about oh. quality, it's a no-brainer. The quality will increase. Um, have you got me? Yeah, yeah we've got you. <laughs> I thought you lost me again. Look, the, the, the quality increases. I mean, I'm not sure um, the exact stats you were referring to um, earlier in the show, Nick, but, um, you know, I, I think without having them in front of me, I suspect that high-intensity metres would certainly um, have increased. You know, the other thing about the stats looking at these last few games, again, there's been, you know, quite a lot of dead rubbers and, you know, some teams coming off... Um, low fitness bases and all that. So you'd need probably a bit more of a longer, um, you know, stretch for, for that data to, to be a little bit more accurate. But, yeah, from a football viewpoint, no-brainer. Aligning with Asia, no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got to sort of just weigh it up in terms of uh, in terms of everything, you know, competing potentially more with, with other sports, ground availability, um, et cetera. So, yeah, it's, I think it's a, a broader discussion that needs to be had. Mm, we do need to have that broader discussion. Stolich, you and I have both seen that article that um, Sydney Morning Herald journalist Vince Lugardi, who's also a special guest of ours frequently on the show here, had put up. What did you make of the results and did you read into it too much? I mean, you know, like Dava was saying, I mean, you can't read into it too much because it's been such a short time of playing and this is such an abnormal situation. But if it was uh, to happen, you know, further, I think the teams really would improve um, in winter. I'll just bring up the article in question. So this was from... uh, like you said, Vince Rigari. So uh, former Socceroos high-performance boss, Dr. Craig Duncan, who works as a consultant for A-League clubs, um, he basically said he's looked at the data. I've got my hands on a fair bit of data. I don't see it. So he, apparently there hasn't been that much of an increased tempo, but I think there, there possibly could be. you got you got to think about when these teams started to do their preseason, they were doing it on the basis that they were going to be playing all of summer. Now that's changed. So would that change your game plan? Would that change the way that you can set up your team in preseason? So I think it's a, an interesting discussion. The other numbers um, that I saw was uh, from a guy called Nick Gerver, which I thought was very interesting because why it wasn't so much on the fact of um, like physical, it was on the passing has increased so the number of passes has gone up since the restart the number of passes per minute of possession so maybe we're seeing a higher quality of football you know maybe we're seeing more passes more movement in terms of being able to receive a pass so i think there has been both you know again it's a small sample but i think there has been an improvement uh, on the pitch Mm. It's one of those things where it's a catch-22. I mean, we're expecting an uplift in the performances given that it is winter. But, I mean, I don't want to doubt what Dr Craig Duncan is saying. He's the doctor, not me. But it's almost strange to me, Davide, that he's got data that he's looking at and that, you know, it's not being done in the context of, okay, well, let's compare the same results to a match that's being played in Perth where it's 35 degrees, uh, you know, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That, to me, biomechanically, physiologically, I cannot imagine that a player is going to perform better in those conditions versus at 7 o'clock at night at temperatures that are ranging between 12 to 15 degrees. I mean, that just sounds crazy to me. Yeah, for the layman, you know, go out for a run when it's, you know, 12 or 13 degrees versus when it's 35 Um you know, and, and and see what's easy and how fast you'll go. So um, yeah, or uh, or Sunday football uh, in our um, 
in our case, uh, Nick. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, look, I, I think you just have to look at – I saw it was it a Premier League game recently that was – I can't remember who played, but it was, um, you know, played in the heat and, and you could tell that the intensity had um, dropped off. So, yeah, I, I think the data, it's just such a small sample size at the moment. Um, you know, you look at the way some of the teams were training and, and players coming back to training late and training in smaller groups, etc. I think there's a lot of factors um, going into those stats at the moment. And I think as well, it might be a psychological thing as well, the fact that just playing in winter, you feel more comfortable. So maybe the players, because every player we ask, they say, yeah, we love it in winter. Winter is a much better option. So even if the data, we're not seeing it exactly in the numbers, I think the players are much more comfortable. And I think that means that they're when they're comfortable on the pitch, better performances. Mm, I've got a question coming through from the lovely Jenny. She's asking me what my shirt says. Um, I'm actually, <laughs> for, for context, I'm, I'm in Canberra visiting my family and I got this shirt given to me. Well, it was actually given to Ned. I can't say that. Um, and I've chosen to pull it out of the cupboard and it's uh, the commentary from when he scored that goal uh, for the 1992 Olympics to get them qualified. Um, I still love that commentary. I still, every time I hear it, it kind of gives me goosebumps and it makes me think back to that night when I was a six-year-old kid waking up and hearing my family screaming and crying in the living room and coming out and wondering what all the fuss was about. The only crying shame about all of it um, for me is that I wasn't old enough to be able to appreciate Ned's career uh, and what he'd achieved. So thanks to the age gap and me being an accident. But um, my mother will tell you a happy accident. Some will disagree with that too. Then maybe some of you watching today, but if that's the case, then I don't care. Anyways, let's move on to the next topic. Let's move on. What to a goal that was, by the way. Oh, just Dutch. like unbelievable. Uh, I just I feel like it's it's an iconic moment, and I know that sounds biased coming from me, but it is a, a moment no. in Australian football that so many people remember. I mean, we've got his jersey that he wore that yeah. day, the, the famous and new I, jersey in a frame. I love it. I still remember his celebration where he's running and he's got his yeah. arms up like that. And, um, and I actually ran a story um, when I was at the Herald Sun probably a year or so ago and found an old photo of Ned um, when the team actually arrived. Because the game, I think, was in Holland, yeah? So when yeah. they arrived... It was in at, Utrecht. Uh, it was in Utrecht, yeah. Yeah, there you go. So when they arrived... Um, Back in Australia, he was mobbed at the airport. Well, it looked like it anyway from the photo. And yeah. and again, we're sort of going off on tangents, which you know you do as, uh, as soccer people in this country. But you know, I go back to Australian youth teams, and they are just like you know all this A League discussion, all that. Australian youth teams are so important to the future of football, and the way. Um, it's not just the results back then, but it was the way it was viewed. And SBS had a big part to play in that. I mean, the fact that that game was televised live, you know, they probably would have had a, a, a pre-game and, you know, half-time, you know, studio with Johnny Warren and, and, and Les Murray, etc. back then. There we go. Fantastic. Um, you know, and, and they just qualified for, for the, the Olympics. And yet, you know, there was a crowd at the airport. So it was just the whole, um, how, youth football and youth national teams were viewed back then. I think we've lost that and we need to get that back and it needs to sort of fit into the whole, I hate using this term, dislike, the football ecosystem. We need to get that back in there and uh, and, and as part of the, you know, the discussions, the decision-making. Why do you think it has dropped off, um, this interest in young national teams? And, of course, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do, Dabita, with the, the fact that we haven't seen them successful at that level anymore. They have certainly dropped off. But what do you put it down to? Yeah, it's 
I think there's a lot of factors at play. Moving to Asia has been, you know, both the best thing and the worst thing that's happened to football because I think qualifying for, for these tournaments, um, well, we, we qualify a lot less now, I guess, because it effectively has, um, you know, has become harder, even though, you know, we only had the, the, the one spot previously. But, um, yeah, it's, it's obviously the publicity. You know, you're not seeing these games um, broadcast live anywhere near as much. Um, you, I don't think there's the level of, of cohesion and respect from club land. I'm not sure clubs mm. understand the importance of the Australian youth national team. So when players get sold overseas, um, and your brother's a really good example, going to Borussia Dortmund, I, I, I suspect, yeah, his Sydney Olympic performances had um, a bit to do with it, but it would have been off the back of his national team performances. Yeah. Um, you know, Daniel Arzani going overseas. I mean, yeah, the, the, the cat was, was out of the bag. But once he makes that senior national team squad and, and makes an appearance, you know, that's what, what, what triggers the move abroad. We've seen with the, with the Joeys since their, you know, World Cup appearance last year, how many of those boys have moved. Um, and even the ones that moved beforehand, it was off the back of qualifying. Noah Bottich, um, you know, for instance, Ryan T, Pepion um, more recently, Josh Brilante we spoke about, that 2013 team you had, um, Adam Taggart, Daniel De Silva and Josh Brilante all moved to Europe into very good clubs. Um, you know, I think very largely off the back of that. Um, I don't want to sound disrespectful to the A-League, but it's not being scouted a hell of a lot by overseas clubs. So, um, but ultimately, it's the A-League clubs and the owners who stand to benefit most from our teams doing well and qualifying um, at international mm. level. They're the ones that will reap the economic benefits. Sarpreet Singh was another one who uh, was Spot scouted on. at the tournament. I think Kakache also, was. there was a lot of interest yeah. in him after that performance because New Zealand did really well in that last World Cup. Mm. Quality footballer to watch as well. Um, while we're on the subject of uh, national team players and, and things like that, I, I want to touch on the, the latest story that's come out this morning uh, with the news that Tom Rogic is eyeing off a move to Qatar worth a reported $7.3 million. At 27 years of age, the question that we're posing to everybody uh, before I get into the intel I've received after speaking to a closely connected source um, is, is this the right move, Davide? What do you think about this? Is it a Canberra source, Lucy? <laughs> no, it's not actually. It's not. But you know, the, you know, journalists. The good journalists never reveals their sources. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, where Tommy Rogic, you know, Middle East Asia. Where do you start? I mean, look, a few years ago, I probably would have looked at this a little bit differently. Um, you know, now I've sort of, you know, moved out of uh, daily newspapers and uh, you know more in the, in the broadcasting space than a journalist, but. It's not ideal, this move, right, um, going to Qatar if he does, in fact, go there. Um, but considering, you know, he was he was almost overlooked by the Australian system. He struggled to get into the Australian youth national teams. He only signed his first A-League deal at the age of 20. We're really a player of that ilk, you know, in most other countries in the world. He gets into the system far earlier at 16 or 17. Um, you know, the fact that he almost missed the uh, the boat in terms of professional football, um, as far as I'm concerned, he can do whatever he wants. Um, you know, clearly it would be, you know, financially driven, but, you know, who am I um, and who are we to, um, you know, to criticise his uh, his decision? Unfortunately, um, 
with Tommy and with so many Australian players, we sort of look and, you know, I mentioned Daniel De Silva earlier and, you know, he sort of he was signed for Roma and went over to Holland. And, and every time, you know, one of these things don't work out, or Razani going to Celtic and he does his knee, you sort of just like you almost sit there with your head in your hands because we're just not producing the volume of players and it's like we just can't – we can't afford to lose players, you know, from those those – whether it's the big five European leagues or some of those, um, you know, leagues on the fringes, um, you know, back in the day they were just, you know, they were they were screaming through. But um, yeah, unfortunately now, I mean, you know, Tommy was being linked with English Premier League moves, um, you know, in the last year or two. So yeah, from a, a Socceroos viewpoint, it would be um, wouldn't be ideal. But then again, you know, Qatar's hosting the World Cup, so maybe it'd be good for <laughs> acclimatising. <laughs> Good point. Stolich, um, a question coming through or a statement really from George Marchetti joining us. Uh, great to have your company once again, George. Always great to see you here. Poor move by Rogic and potentially almost spells the end of his Socceroos career. Does it though? Are we in a situation where we've got the luxury of picking a host of players in that position who we feel like uh, could deputise well uh, in his absence just because he has gone to Qatar? Uh, no, I think because he goes to Qatar, that doesn't rule him out of contention for the Socceroos at all. Uh, you know, I think the Socceroos right now aren't in a position. It's not like we have Kuhl and Vaduka and Bresciano all playing in the top leagues in the Premier League and, and Serie A, and that's just not the case at the moment. So I think Rogic is definitely still in the frame for the Socceroos. Uh, but it's a disappointing move. It, it's just because... You know, we had such high hopes for him and, you know, he has had a lot of injuries. And like you say, Double, it is his choice and we have to respect it. And listen, if you have the opportunity to set up not only your life for the rest of your life, but maybe your family's life as well, that's very tempting. But personally, I just would have loved to have seen him go to continental Europe. You know, maybe there was, you know, could he have gone to Spain, Italy, uh, Germany, something like that. I think he's such a wonderful talent and he's still 27. I know he has injury history. Um, but yeah, I, I just, to me, it's disappointing. I think he's probably one of our most talented players, maybe along with Arzani, uh, that we've had in the, the last 10 years. Um, but, yeah, it, it is a bit disappointing for me. And, you know, I, I, it's a bit disappointing that these last couple of years at Celtic haven't worked out for him either because he was a real hero there. They absolutely loved him. They, you know, they called him the Wizard of Oz. And then these last year or two since Brendan Rodgers left especially, he's just been out of the team. And he did need to leave the club, but I was hoping that it, yeah, it was going to be to somewhere else in Europe, not to Qatar. I think Rogers was a big fan of his and on the flip side, uh, you know, and that goes back to what we were saying earlier, you know, the influence of a coach on a player's career. If you've got a coach that's in your corner that rates you as a player, um, you're going to be given the best possible opportunities. But I don't think that Neil Lennon has particularly fancied him. He has also grappled with injuries, as you mentioned there. The intel that I had coming out of the UK uh, effectively was that this is um, an in quotation marks, a cash grab from Tom, that apparently he had been quite unhappy with his, uh, you know, with his contract agreement uh, in Glasgow. He signed a five-year deal in 2018 and then shortly after started to express that he wasn't happy, that he wanted to move on, was angling to move to potentially China or elsewhere. But we know also that, um, you know, he's been battling these injuries in a chronic knee problem. So for him, um, can you begrudge him for thinking that perhaps the clock is ticking on his career, even though we externally look at it and say, well, he's 27. That's, you know, what most will say is the prime um, for a footballer's career. But is he looking at this and thinking, 
thinking, well, you know what, I actually have to maximise, uh, you know, the, the best that I possibly can out of my, you know, remaining years on, on my career and, and think about my own family and, and financial circumstances going forward. Um, but I, I agree there, there are shades of disappointment imbued in this. I would have liked to have seen him go elsewhere and stay in Europe to further test himself. I think he's got more uh, to give. Um, and, and I just don't feel like we've seen what Tom Rogic is fully capable of. And I don't know if that's because he's not pushing himself enough, if he's not in the right environment. I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, it's been a tough old ride um, the last couple of seasons with the club. But, again, it goes back to what we said. You can't begrudge the players for wanting to move on and look to better themselves um, financially. Um, the next topic of conversation that I want to touch on is the news that uh, Football Federation Australia have appointed an interim, interim, pardon me, National Technical Director, and it is Trevor Morgan, the, the coach of the Joeys. Uh, and uh, I think it's been a long time coming that we've had someone deployed in this position ever since Rob Sherman left after just nine months in the role, dub whatever. But um, I don't know why the interim tag, what the whole point of that is. I think that, you know, Trevor Morgan is someone that has been contributing to Australian football for some time now, and uh, it certainly does need to be an Australian. I've been the first to stick my hand up and say that we need someone that understands the Australian system in that position. But um, what was your reaction to the news? Um, yeah, I was probably surpri slightly surprised by the, you know, the interim um, mm. aspect of it. But, um, yeah, like you, I I'm really... Um, buoyed by the fact that it is an Australian one who's very passionate about Australian football. He's been involved um, in Australian football for a long time. I like the fact that he understands the school system as well, having been mm. um, involved at, at Westfield Sports. I think the, the schools are massively under underutilised from a football development viewpoint in Australia, speaking of a, a system that's, I wouldn't say broken, but, um, you know, needs a lot of repair. Um yeah, he coached the Joeys at the last, um, you know, FIFA Under-17 World Cup, got him to the knockout phase and, you know, really has his, um, his ear to the ground in terms of, uh, you know, global trends. And I like the fact that, you know, Rob Smith um, is playing a, a, a mentoring role there. So, um, yeah, let's see how he goes. Obviously, Rob Sherman wasn't there for, for too long. He was frustrated by uh, the bureaucratic shackles, um, placed upon him, which, um, you know, a lot of people do um, in, in Australian football and, uh, you know, a lot of good people, unfortunately, leave and, and many um, never return. But, um, look, he's he's a good guy and he means well. I know he's, um, his heart's in the right place and, um, yeah, I wish him well. Michael Ong, Lucy, you forgot to give Dr. Ron Smith a shout-out. He will be his technical consultant, so it's great to have Smudger involved in the game again uh, in, in that particular way. Of course, we know of his success at the AIS and, and what he's been able to contribute. He's a very bright, intelligent man when it comes to football. Just speak to any of the footballers that came through, uh, particularly at the AIS. They're all advocates of his, so it's great to see Ron in that position. But um, before I bounce over to Stolich, Davide, you actually had the chance to catch up with with uh, Trevor Morgan on the ticker, uh, your program, what did he have to say? I did. Um, ticker Sport, uh, it's, uh, it was on today at, uh, at noon, but it will be up on the ticker website, tickertv.com.au, or you can download the app um, to catch the interview. <laughs> but, um, now, look, Trevor um, yeah, had a, a, a fascinating chat. I've, I've known him for quite a long time. I actually went to cover the 2009 
uh, FIFA Under 20 World Cup in Egypt. I was actually doing the uh, the media for the FFA, um, and he was uh, in the uh, in the coaching staff. That was when Jan Verslain was uh, was the coach. Um, Whoa! Aaron Moy scored a good goal. I remember he Aaron Moy scored a free kick or something from very far yeah, out. He was a Bolton Wanderers midfielder um, back then, and I remember having a conversation. He had hair too. He had hair too, <laughs> didn't he, Moisey, at that time? <laughs> <laughs> little, uh, cool little hair there. Um, but, yeah, you've got a little team, and, um, yeah, they played good football, and it was uh, enjoyable to be um, involved there behind the scenes. But, yeah, I mean, Trevor's obviously been involved for a long time. And, you know, he, he spoke about, um, you know, t- tapping into the – um, the 11 principles document. I know there's been a little bit of criticism around that, but he said that that certainly will be a, you know, um, used as a, a bit of a foundation, I guess. Um, he mentioned that the women's side of it will be an important part of it and uh, he will be um, involved also in the decision-making behind the Matildas coach. So obviously they need to uh, select a, a replacement for Ante Milicic, uh, the clock you know, really is ticking, um, you know, three years is, is not a long time for, to prepare for a home World Cup. So, um, yeah, um, it, was a, it was a fascinating chat. Mm, well, we'll um, get more about your uh, experiences and your career change, of course, uh, once we get through the rest of the news items, Davide. But I, I want to explore the next one, Stolich, and that is that Robbie Fowler is taking legal action against Brisbane Raw. And it's, you know, not, not just limited to that. I mean, I'm hearing some rumblings that former staff members are also wanting to take out legal action against the club. That's not something that's been widely reported just yet, so stay tuned for that one. But then there's also the issue concerning the footballer Zach Duncan in which Brisbane Raw are trying to sue for money as well. But the interesting thing is, is that Fowler, um, you know, when we saw everything emerge originally, he was speaking to a UK-based broadcast at the time, and I think it was in probably around about June, in which he said, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure of what's happening at the minute, and I'm paraphrasing effectively, uh, but the club haven't made any real attempts to get me back here yet, and I'm just waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, because when COVID hit, obviously, he went back to his family in the UK, and then whatever fell down in between there and the resumption of the season involves that interview that Robbie gave Stolich, because then the club deemed that effectively he was damaging their reputation. Um, So the contract was torn up. But he has taken the fight to FIFA. There is the news article that we've pulled up there on the World Game website if you want to find out more info around it. But what's your reaction to it, Stolich? I mean, it's disappointing that, again, Brisbane are having so many off-field problems. I mean, this this should be a great club. They've just had problem after problem off the field, uh, you know, especially kind of since that Postacoglu era, and they haven't been able to capitalise on the on-field success they've had. And the backers have been a bit of a disaster of an ownership. Um, you know, it's, I, I don't think Robbie Fowler, I don't think he was a particularly great coach, you know, in the league. And, I find that interesting that they even say, oh, he was damaging the reputation because, you know, at a certain point, how do you define damaging the reputation of, of the club and all that kind of stuff? But, yeah, it's disappointing that Haven't the Bakery's done a good enough job of damaging the reputation of that club? I mean, that's what I would say, right? So, you know, what about when the, the shirt numbers were falling off? What was that doing for the reputation of the club? But anyway, it, it's a strange one. I mean, I, th- I thought it was kind of funny that um, Robbie Fowler in this story even says that they turned gangster on us out of nowhere, which I think, you know, we had Perth almost sold to that cryptocurrency guy out of Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. So it's good that the A-League has these colourful characters. But, yeah, I don't know, it's... It's it's not great, but 
you know, Robbie Fowler, I mean, we could have probably done so much more with such an icon uh, in world football here in Brisbane, but, you know, it, it didn't work out well. And, and not only did he have issues with this, he had issues with arguing with uh, fans of the Raw on, on social media. You know, yeah. there, was, there was issues with players and stuff like that. So it just wasn't a really great tenure. And uh, I think it's a shame that it's ended like this. A couple of the quotes that he gave with reference to that um, gangster comment, he said, they suddenly turned gangster on us, he told the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Lots of people have opinions about me, but one thing I'm not is selfish. I had a job to do and I wanted to finish that job. I wasn't given the chance to go back and show people what we potentially could have done. I gave everything for the year for Brisbane Raw. My family were back and forth. I was over there with my own, with just my number two, and we gave everything that we had to help the club to get them where they are. One thing that's kind of lost on me, or I mean, I'm happy to be, you know, corrected on this, but the thing I found strange, Davode, was that he chose to go back to the UK when the pandemic struck and, you know, staff and players had been stood down without pay. That's fine. But is it strange for me to think why is it the club's responsibility to pay for his flight to come back if he elected to, to go back? Am I missing something here? Because if I now said to SBS, hey, can you fly me back? to Sydney this Saturday for the news, they'd be like, well, you drove to Canberra yourself. Why Why is it our responsibility to get you back here? I'm not, I just think, is this strange? Am I missing something here? Yeah, possibly. But honestly, like, who knows what's happened behind the scenes? It's just, <laughs> like, it's just a shambles. Um, and we just, we need to get better owners, you know, to, to um, your point earlier. I mean, like, you know, Newcastle Jets are, are on the market. Central Coast Mariners are on the market. Um you know, going back to, you know, the expansion process before over $100 million that was rejected by Australian football, um, you know, that <laughs> on the table. Just like, That's just mental. Yeah, well, it's true. <sighs> I mean, you know, all the bids were, you know, in that sort of 10 to $15, you know, million dollar um, vicinity. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what, do you, <laughs> what can I say? Davo, what do you think about that community ownership model that was being floated a few weeks ago with the Mariners? You know, we, we talk about doing new owners. Do you think that is plausible in Australia? Possibly. It depends how it's um, how it's run. Um, the Mariners are an interesting one, aren't they? Because they really started off like a house on fire. And I was in Sydney at the time and working for the Daily Telegraph. And, you know, they used to get really good crowds and, you know, had some really big fixtures against, um, you know, Sydney FC in particular and, and the F3 derby and, you know, for whatever reason they've lost their way. So I think for a, you know, a potentially, you know, tribal community that did really engage with the club once upon a time, um, this could be a good model um, going forward. But, um, yeah, the, the stadium, you know, is, is a really important one over there as well in terms of, um, you know, whether it's ownership or, or management rights, you know, that would be crucial um, in terms of, uh, you know, attracting um, pretty decent investment. But, yeah, the community model could, you know, for, especially for clubs like the Mariners, could really work. Well, do you want to see the Mariners stay afloat? Um, it's a controversial question, I know, and I mean no offence to the Mariners fans with this, but I have heard rumblings that potentially other bidders are at the table looking to take over the licence and establish a team elsewhere across the country. Would you be in favour of that or do you want to see the Mariners kick on? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on what 
you know, there would obviously be people that want to keep the Mariners on the Central Coast, um, you know, so that's a big part of it. And also but do you? Like, I'm asking, I'm asking do you, I want to see them? do you want to? Well, again, uh, yes, I do, because I think they've, um, they've added a lot to the competition, you know. I, I think they've lost their way as a club. I think they are the perfect club to be, you know, that youth production model for Australian football. There is no reason why, considering how poor they have been, you know, on the field results-wise over the last few years. There is no reason why they, um, you know, couldn't have given a lot of younger players opportunities. They've sort of, you know, dabbled in it, but they have, it's it's not, you know, a strategic approach. So I, I think they could have, um, you know, been that team, the, you know, almost a, a quasi-Australian youth national team and, um, you know, could have, uh, you know, made a lot of money in the process. And I think they would have been a lot more watchable for, um, you know the local community. Obviously, they would still. But would have they be competitive? Would they? Yeah. Would that? Would they be competitive yeah, though, Dave? If you move to if, that kind of model, if if you have the pick of the litter in terms of you know young players, and you obviously invest heavily in the local market, developing young players, a lot of young players that have come through the Mariners. I mean, you look at Lockie Wales, who you know we saw the highlights of him whipping in that beautiful cross for Jamie McLaren. He's a local boy. He started off as a ball boy at the Central Coast Mariners. Now they lost him because in his last season when he was playing senior A-League football and played about 12 games, he was getting paid. Now, I think the club, they took exception to a story that I wrote, but it was an interview with Lockie Wales and uh, and, and he was quoted. He told me that he was getting paid $80 a week. So he was on one of those, you know, youth contracts or whatever. Now, there was conjecture about whether he'd sign a, a, a I don't know, a one or a two-year deal. But, I mean, again, when you're looking at it from a, a business, a football development, from a, um, you know, a, a transfer lens, it is a no-brainer that you sign a kid like that up on a three or four year deal before you even, you know, look at the romantic side of it, the fact that he's a local boy passionate about, yeah. um, you know, the club. So, you know, Matty Simon and, and, you know, a number of these guys that have come through the, the system, they're Trent Bahaji. They're, they're producing plays. So obviously that's important. You've got to keep those local guys. Then you get the best of the young, you know, Australian players coming through and you obviously have to, um, you know, have to invest in them. Mm. Not all of them. I mean, obviously you're going to have senior players in there as well, but, you know, are they going to be competitive? Are they going to win any games? I mean, have a look at their results over the last couple of years, you know, with the mm. alternative approach. How, how are they going? But some could argue that under Paolo, I mean, they played some beautiful football and that they were yeah. competitive at times. And even and even now more recently with Alan Stajic, I think there have been some games where you've said, actually, they look really good and they look like they could, you know, get a result here. But for, for whatever reason, I think, I mean, from having you know, an experience with the club. Obviously, Corey was there and just having some insight into what it was like, I think, resources-wise. Charlesworth, I've already publicly said, I think has been a disgraceful owner. He's been willing to invest in real estate and infrastructure around the, the city, but to not actually invest in the football club has been his biggest crime. I'm so glad to see the back of him because I think that this club deserves an opportunity to succeed. If you've got the right coach and the right players there, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to. And to move to a model, as you're saying, Double to really start promoting their young players. Effectively, the club have lost their way and they need someone that's got their head screwed on right that's wanting to see the football club succeed. I've met Mike and I think he's a really good guy and I think he's Mike Charlesworth, that is, and I think his heart is in the right place. But you know, No, Double that's a load of crap. No, that's a load of crap. No, hang on. I disagree. I disagree. No. I disagree completely. Well, I disagree with you. Hear me out. 
Yeah. I, I think his heart is in the right place, but I think that he has been advised really poorly over the process. Now, the problem when you're investing in young players, it can't be a one-year approach. It needs to be a longer-term approach. It needs to be minimum two, probably three years. And you're going to have to take a bit of short-term paint with regards to results. But obviously... Him, you know, listening to certain people, um, you know, coaches being under pressure for results, it hasn't worked. It needs to be strategic. But the cat's out of the bag now. They've, they've, they're way too far gone and he's obviously got the club for sale. But that's why they're way too far gone, because of Charles Worth. I mean, I hear, look, I've never met the guy. And what I'm saying is nothing personal. And I'm just looking at this strictly from an observer that's seen this club go from success to start to flounder, to start to drown, to then Charles Worth comes in. And then since he's been on board, from my point of view, I think they've just been on life support. You know, he was bitching and moaning in the in the, in the, in the, in the Central Coast newspapers over there about how, oh, I'm trying to invest in, you know, this entertainment facility around the stadium, but the Gosford Council, the council there are really screwing me over. They're not giving me the opportunity to do it. But, hey, I'm going to build a centre of excellence. That centre of excellence, there is nothing excellent about that facility. The players don't even have their own gym equipment. There's a public pool. They aren't even allowed to train. They're not even allowed to train on the pitch there. So why is it that you're happy to throw millions and millions of dollars at entertainment centres, but yet you're not even going to give the players a foam roller each? You're not even going to give them their own gym facility. Um, you know, there was nothing excellent about it. That whole office centre there, they had leased them out to other businesses. The Mariners had this tiny little hovel in the corner corner there and the, the, a few of the staff god bless the staff who've managed to stick by this club and all the volunteers in all these years you know we're just kind of working away trying to do their best so charles Worth, goodbye i'm glad you're gone i want a good <laughs> owner i want a good owner to come into the competition and to buy the license and to keep it there or if they're not going to keep it there which i think would be a disgrace because the people in in the central coast they're beautiful people they, they love their football club they're they're diehard supporters um but if someone is going to take it over that, you know, we give them the best opportunity to succeed. We need owners that give a damn about football, not just about real estate. Um, again, we're going to get this. <laughs> we're going to get this moving along here because we've got to let you go to Davide Stolich. Anything to add to that? Anything? I mean, what are your thoughts on the backeries? You know, let's just let's just let's just hey, go through the list. Hey, <laughs> I wrote a blog. I wrote a blog about the backeries a good few years ago now, saying they need to vamos out of this A League as well. Okay, they're not exempt from this either. Um, a few other topics before we wrap up. Uh, <laughs> we want to talk a little bit uh, about you and your career switch. Um, and, and one of the biggest burning questions that I have is I want to know what's been one of the biggest stories that you've worked on in your career when you were at the Herald Sun as a football journalist uh, and, and you know, how do you remember those times? I know that we had earlier questions coming through. Michael Long wanted to know about which was your favourite World Cup to cover, but you've had such an illustrious journalism career. I want to know. Tell us all about it. Thank you kindly. Um Look, the the I mean, I'll start off at the Geelong Advertiser um, cadetship, and then Sunday Times, Perth Daily Telegraph in Sydney, and, and finished off at the Herald Sun in Melbourne with a stint over in the UK. You know, working for Fox Sports um, as their Premier League Euro correspondent. So, look, they were all you know, they were all highlights um, in themselves. But yeah, in terms of the biggest story, I mean, it was undoubtedly. Um, Ange Postacoglu um, resigning as the Socceroos coach, um, you know, on the eve of the 2018 World Cup. So it was, uh, I, I broke the story before the Honduras game. I think it was just after um, the Syria games. And, you know, there was 
I think a few weeks, yeah, before they still had obviously those those final two playoffs to play, and yeah, copped a fair bit of heat um, for that story, and. Um, you know, I wasn't 100% sure it was going to happen, but I was pretty confident it was going to happen and um, wrote it, uh, stuck by it, and, uh, yeah, it ended up uh, coming to fruition. So, um, yeah, that's undoubtedly the biggest story I wrote and I've been involved with in my journalistic career. Stolich, over to you, some questions for Double Yeah, Double, I want to ask you about this uh, famous story uh, that you wrote uh, mm. in 2015, uh, how FFA scored 32 own goals in 18 months and CEO <laughs> David Gallup still kept his job. I mean, listen, I'm a Barca fan. We just conceded eight, but 32 own goals is an incredible <laughs> amount of goals to concede. Um, tell us how that story came about and what was the reaction like to it? Yeah, well... I don't think you can see it on there, but there's another byline on that story. Um, Matt Winley, there we go. So, um, who uh, departed the Herald Sun before I did to uh, to actually go and work for um, the A League expansion bid um, over in the southeast. But as oh, generally happened, whenever we uh, had joint bylines and the stories were controversial, um, I was the one who, um, you know, copped the rap. But um, yeah, we're. We, we sort of, the idea came about early in the week. It was obviously a pretty testing time for Australian football. I think we were both frustrated and uh, we just started, you know, scribbling a, uh, a list together. And um, on Friday afternoon, I think the list was about 27 or 28, but um, there were a few things that happened over <laughs> the next 24 hours, including the, uh, the, um, Melbourne Victory Wellington game where there was the clash of kits and uh, yeah, there was something else that happened. I can't remember what it was. Um, you'd probably be towards the end of the list. So, Sponsorless yeah, Socceroos, no sky blue in your city, Frank Lampard, no thing. I mean, it just, the sad thing is that we could probably write this every 18 months. Yeah. The Frank Lampard story is is fascinating. Like, he was dead set coming to the A-League. It was a done deal for him to come from to, and play for Melbourne City. But if, I, don't, I don't know exactly what happened, but a few of the other um, clubs kicked up a fuss and then they basically changed the loan rules and, um, you know, he wasn't allowed to come. And, again, I just thought that was such a missed opportunity because that was – the real high watermark for the A-League. That was, you know, Del Piero, Heskey. So, you know, globally we're relevant. And it's these big guns we're looking going, hang on, we want to be a part of this. A bit like, you know, what the MLS has done over the last few years and what, you know, Iniesta and Torres, for instance, have done over in Japan. So rather than looking at it as a, oh, my God, let's, you know, view this as a, as a, as a real opportunity to, to leverage this and, and grow the game, get him in here, get our television ratings from, you know, the games were rating at 150, 160, 170 back then, grow it and then, you know, open up negotiations to, 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 you know, for the next deal. It was straight away that whole mentality of, you know, let's pander to the lowest common denominator. Um, Melbourne City are going to be too good. They're going to kill everyone because they, they've just signed David Villa. And that whole mentality just really frustrates me. And, um, yeah, so maybe it was born out of frustration out of that deal because we knew, being in Melbourne, that, that that deal was done. Like, David Villa was there and, and ended up being a bit of a shambles as well. But he was there for four days. Like, David Villa was in the A-League. Frank Lampard could have come to the A-League. I mean, it's fantasy stuff now, really, isn't it? God, when you think Good. about the kind of foreigners we've had and that we may never see here again, um, it's pretty disturbing. Stolage? Well, can I just say, 2015, Crisis Club, Newcastle Jets, Crisis <laughs> Club, Brisbane Raw. <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same show. It's the same show we're doing today. I mean, 
the never-ending pay dispute. <laughs> <laughs> it's Groundhog Day. I mean, the one the one thing I'll say is, um, I mean, I got to say, I absolutely loved this article uh, when it came out. Um, because I think, you know, so many times, and you know, Lucy, we, we're lucky enough that we oh, get to give up. There we go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but I guess it's that oh, thing yeah. of you, you you do get frustrated with everything that's happening in the league. And then just for you to just put it in such succinct terms, I mean, I think everyone who read it was just like, this is exactly right. And, you know, they've fixed some things. They haven't fixed other things. But, yeah, I thought it was a very good story for you guys to write to just concisely show what a debacle we were having in Australian football. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, clearly one of the more memorable ones. David Gallup was pretty thrilled with it too, uh, as you can imagine. <laughs> what was your relationship with him like? Because I will tell you, I reached out to him um, a couple of months ago sort of when the pandemic had struck and, you know, we were all scratching around for content and, and wanting to really fill the gaps given that there was no football double there. And I said, you know, David, I'd love to sort of sit down with you and, and, and find out from your perspective what the biggest issues were within the sport during your tenure. And he said, well, Lucy, thanks for that. You never asked me while I was in the job, so I'll politely decline now. Hope you can <laughs> I said, sure, I said, look, and do you know what? What I actually realised um, with the benefit of hindsight, and I mean, I'm, I'm never bothered by that. I've always said, double as journalist, you know, I'm not here to be a friend. I'm here to do my job. I've got my friends away from football, away from journalism. They're the only people I need to have in my corner. Um, because invariably, you would know. You can be friends with someone and then the next day you might have to write something really awful about them. That's just the way that this industry works. But I realised about David Gallup's tenure and a lot of people hear it through the comments saying, can we have a David Gallup bagging show? Um, and, and a lot of you guys have been flagging him off. But, you know, I'm not saying that he was the greatest thing for our sport, but I, I also don't think he was the worst. Um, you speak to guys like Jack Riley who were with the FFA board many years ago now, and he'll tell you that David Gallup came in with the best intentions possible. He wanted to exact change, but... A bit like Rob Sherman possibly had all the right intentions but wasn't able to get them over the line because of perhaps an incompetent board, a dictatorial chairman in Stephen Lowy. I mean, these are all things that you have to contend with when you are in the CEO role. You're answering to the board. Uh, and I think he was made a scapegoat for a lot of the problems that the sport has experienced. Uh, but, you know, their things are in a conversation for another day. I want you to answer, though, which World Cup you've thoroughly enjoyed covering because you've, you've, you've covered a host of them. That's so tough to answer. Um, it's three of them equal. 2002 was my first one, covered the Croatian national team. I was actually working for the... I got my accreditation through the Croatian Herald, the Hrvatski Vjesnik here in Australia. And it, got, it got me into the final, believe it or not. I don't know how I, uh, I blagged away um, to, the, uh, to the death, but that was so good and, um, yeah, really paved my way into um, journalism and, and, and my passion for football. I was passionate about it. But when I saw the enormity of this event, um, I, 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 was, uh, I was hooked. Um, 2006, obviously, with the Socceroos, that was um, phenomenal. Um, you know, first World Cup and just, you know, with so many guys who you've grown up watching and, and supporting. I was a Melbourne Knights fan, um, ball boy, etc. cetera, um, down at Summer Street. So, um, yeah, and obviously seeing some of them, you know, play for the, uh, the the Croatian national team and, you know, some good mates of mine as well, Joe Didlitzer and Josip Šimunic. Um, and, yeah, again, 2018 um, was was great fun. I, I still can't believe Croatia got to the final of that World Cup. That was just like ridiculous. Um, I still, every now and then, 
don't know whether I daydream or what, but I think back and go, how did that happen? Like, um, so when you're covering the Socceroos, you know, you're just so busy with work, you're, you're under deadline pressure, etc. But when they're out, like I was still working, I was at the Herald Sun still at the time, but it's, you know, it's a lot more relaxed and, you know, you're able to sit back and actually enjoy and watch, whereas, you know, with the Socceroos games, you're always filing, so you can't really be a supporter. So, you know, the Croatian national team has, you know, very much been an outlet from that viewpoint, but that was just um, just extraordinary. I just spent pretty much the whole tournament sobbing the whole way through because of Croatia. Not because of anything else, just because of Croatia and, just, you know, calling my parents back home at, like, 2 in the yeah. morning time and sobbing on the phone and hearing my dad cry, you know, he's tough as nails and hearing my mum cry, like, I could start tearing up again because it was such yeah. a joy. And that's coming from, you know, the people of Croatian heritage and myself and you, Davide. Before we let you go, though, um, we want to find out the career switch because I will tell you in all honesty, I was pretty gutted when you left the Herald Sun um, and, the, and the biggest reason being that you have been such an incredible contributor to Australian football um, in that sense, uh, you know, breaking stories and, and you're such a knowledgeable guy, you're so passionate about the game. To lose you, I felt like we lost a credible voice and right now more than ever is when we need credible voices in the game. Game, but what prompted you to, to move and make that switch from the Herald Sun to Ticker Sport as a presenter now? Thanks, Lucy. That's um, yeah, really kind and, and really touching, to be honest. Um, yeah, really appreciate those kind words. Um, look, to be honest, I just uh, felt my time was up. Um, you know, I, I'd had a great run um, as a journalist, but I started at the Geelong Advertiser in late 2002. So I'd been, you know, a, a journal and a print journal for the better part of 18 years. And, um, yeah, I just felt, you know, it was uh, it was time for a change. So I was, you know, really lucky to, to leave on my own terms. Um, yeah, it was a few months ago now and just happened to, to coincide with um, with COVID. So, um, look, I'm, I'm now um, freelancing, I guess, and, and, you know, moving more into a um, freelance consulting path, um, you know, and, and, and doing a lot of work um, in the TV space. So Ticker is, um, is one of those. So I'm in the studio now. I did the uh, Ticker Sports Show today. little shameless plug there with the... Uh, Model. Um, it was actually Ticker TV's first birthday yesterday. So for those who haven't heard it, it's a new streaming service um, here in Australia based out of Melbourne, founded by Aaron Young, um, former Sky News Melbourne Bureau Chief. And, um, yeah, it's obviously I got into TV through the back door, but um, I've really enjoyed, uh, you know, many, many years ago, but I've really enjoyed, um, you know, doing it almost on a, a, a full-time basis now. And I'm actually enjoying, on Ticker Sport, we talk about the business of sport and we talk about all sports. It's not just um, it's not just football. So, you know, as, as passionate as I am about football, I've actually enjoyed um, getting out of my comfort zone a little bit and, um, yeah, and, uh, and talking about different things. I'm also producing the, uh, the the Football Belong series for Optus Sport, which we touched on earlier and, you know, has been... Um, you know, a great project and series two will uh, recommence next year. There's some great stories to come, including Italy and Greece, and there will be a longer form piece as well um, at the end of that. But um, yeah, it's uh, Optus uh, have been, you know, fantastic to, to, to work for as well. I've started writing some columns for them too. So yeah, I'm quite enjoying um, just, you know, branching out and doing, um, doing a number of things. So yeah, um, happy days. 
Good on you. I think you're doing fantastic work. Um, and now seeing this Optus series, um, Stolich, oh, I think it was just brilliant. Um, you know, Optus doing some really great things in this space. We have to commend them on that. And also add that perhaps we're a little bit jealous. But you know what? That's <laughs> that's the way the broadcast market goes. I think they're doing fantastic work and it's great to see for the game of football. Um, Stolich, uh, some final questions for Double before we say goodbye. Yeah, Davo, I want to know, we, we talk about now how hard it is for the A-League and, and football to get kind of mainstream media attention. And, and you were there at the Herald Sun. Obviously, Melbourne, for anyone who doesn't live there, is so obsessed with AFL and AFL is such a dominant, dominant sport. What is, how hard is it for the Australian football to get mainstream attention and how important is it or do we need to kind of go our own route and just be our own sport and say, well, if the likes of the Herald Sun and the Daily Telegraph and Channel 9 and Channel 7 don't cover us, well, that's going to be that and we'll just have to do our own thing. How do you think that balance lies? Yeah, mate, it's a, it's a really good question. And, you know, to be honest, it was um, one of my frustrations, I guess, um, in, in the last year or two. And it's another chicken and egg scenario, you know, like my last column for the Herald Sun ended up running, you know, next to the obituaries and, um, you know, a, a, no. a lot of stories in the um, – oh, it's just the last, you know, the, the last sports page. The, you got the Sudoku and the the, the crosswords and, and the obituaries. And, um, you know, un- unfortunately, a lot of stories in, in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months were, were running, you know, further back. And, you know, I cop a lot of criticism from people in the football community, um, did cop a lot um, about the placement, and the placement is largely out of my control. I mean, um, yeah, you know, the better stories that you get, um, obviously the better chance they are of running further forward. But to your point, yes, it is an AFL town, it is an AFL paper. So um, I don't think people understand how challenging it was for, for myself. Matt Winley before me, um, Peter Dezira before um, before us, Grantley Bernard as well, um, to, to to fight for space. And the same goes for all the News Corp writers mm-hmm. around the country. And you have a look at what's happened, obviously. Marco Monteverdi, thankfully, still working for the Courier-Mail. Um, Vel Miliach, I think, is still doing some work for the advertiser. But... Um, yeah, um, Tom Smithies has also departed. So, you know, it's, it's been a savage blow um, to uh, Australian football from a, a mainstream media viewpoint with regards to the News Corp papers. And, um, yeah, I, I think there's a bit of both, but I think we really football really needs to focus on, on itself, um, just getting the product right, getting the A-League right, the second division and... and you know, all through the lens of authenticity. And if you get the product right and if you start producing World Cup plus players, if you're selling players to Borussia Dortmund, Ala, Ahmed Zelic and, you know, Harry Kuehl, the next Harry Kuehl playing for Liverpool, the mainstream media will cover those stories. You know, if you're getting thirty or 40,000 to stadiums here in Australia, if you're having you know, promotion, relegation, playoffs and, and, and big relevant games. And, you know, Daniel Arzani is, is, is playing his, I don't know, 50th game and there's a bidding war between a Premier League club and a club over in Spain. The mainstream media will be interested in these stories. But at the moment, um, there's not a lot of genuine stories to tell in Australian football. And I think we as a game really need to get cracking. We really need to get moving on a lot of these things um, that have been stated in the 11 principles, stuff that we've discussed today, growing the game. And, um, yeah, it'll look after itself. But I think first and foremost, yeah, football has to take a bit of ownership um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the media outreach, um, you know, an in-house production team, uh, et cetera. 
you've been hanging out with Simon Hill, I think, for a while now. And like, <laughs> it sounds like you're all singing. Not that much. <laughs> you sound like you're singing from the same choir book. But do you know what? It's funny because I think we're all in agreement here that what you're saying is absolutely right. Um, Ivan Stragan, one of our top fans via our World Game Lives, authenticity is crucial to football fans, no more gimmicks. If it looks, sounds and acts like football, the fans will come, people will come. And the longer we keep mistreating it, I think the longer we can expect this period of frustration to continue. But I'll tell you what, the opposite of frustrating is just delightful, and that's you, David Davutovic. Thank you so much for joining us today. We would happily have you back anytime you agreed to join us. We could listen to you talk football all day. It's great to see. I mean, I congratulated you on your contributions with the Herald Sun, but I'm glad to hear that you're enjoying this new challenge with the ticker. Um, ticker Sport is where you can find David Davutovich now. He's also writing regular comments for columns, uh, pardon me, for Optus Sport and part of the Football Belong series, which has just been such a success. It's been great to see you doing so well and great to have you here. So make sure you come back to us, Double Air. Thanks very much for your time, guys. And I was just going to say on the last point, uh, we need to introduce the football sniff test, I think. What's the football sniff test? Well, in terms of the authenticity. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. We're going to start introducing the football sniff test. Um, <laughs> great sniff of your company today and of everyone's joining in today. It's been it's just been sensational. So make sure that you continue to join us weekly. Uh, we come to you live from Wednesdays uh, from 1pm Australian Eastern Standard Time for our World Game Show, which covers more broader topics and uh, has a range of special guests. But every Thursday when we get together from 1.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, it is just to talk about the A-League and uh, Australian football specifically. Um, I know that this is deviating slightly away from that, but we have to mention that we are broadcasting the final of the UEFA Women's Champions League, which is a fantastic coup for us on the 31st of August from 3.30 a.m. It's an early start, but we are looking so forward to seeing some of the best women's football played out on the main stage there. Stolich, well done to you. Great to have your company as well. We're looking forward to another bumpy show next week on Tuesday, or should I say Wednesday. We will reveal our special guests. And for all of the stories that we have discussed, you can head to, I'm starting to struggle, it's getting towards the end of the half gibbering. Uh, you can head to the World game website for the latest news opinion pieces and polls. We've got so much there. It's a one-stop shop for football, guys. Thanks for joining us. But it's time now to go on behalf of myself, Solich and Zawadeh. It's great to have your company and we'll see you again next week. Ciao.